Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. Every year, crowds of people, usually led by bearded men in white cloaks, gather at Stonehenge to commemorate the summer solstice. These are the Druids, people who continue the traditions and practices of our mysterious ancestors who inhabited pre-Christian Britain. But Stonehenge was built a few thousand years before the Druids, who were Celts, even came to Britain. So tying them to Stonehenge is a bit like a group of foreign tourists showing up at Hadrian's Wall today and laying some kind of claim to it. The ancient Druids may or may not have gravitated towards the place, but it wasn't built by them, and it wasn't designed for their purposes. So who are these modern Druids? Do they have any connection to their ancient namesakes? Within England, details of the ancient Druids are scarce. In fact, archaeologist Miranda Aldhouse Green has stated that our richest textual sources come from none other than Julius Caesar, He claimed the Druids practiced human sacrifice, confining unfortunate souls in a huge wicked construction designed to look like a man before setting it on fire. His recollections inspired the Hammer Horror classic, The Wicker Man. However, there are practicing Druids today who say the demise of the ancient records has been greatly exaggerated. And in fact, they have plenty of verifiable evidence to establish who the Druids were what they believed, and how their broader society operated. One such person is Druid priestess, researcher and author, Ellen Everett Hopman. I recently spoke to Ellen to find out more about her group, the White Oak, and Druid culture in general. So Ellen, there's a perception that all we know about the Druids comes from a few snippets provided by Julius Caesar and a few other Roman writers. Is that accurate? Actually, we have a lot of material. For some reason, everybody gets hooked on Julius Caesar, and we don't even know if he was telling the truth because he wanted to get money from Rome, so he had to make the Celts sound really terrible. And uh, he had a lot of political ambition, so he was spinning things. Everybody ignores the Irish material, and that's what I focus on, and that's what my Druid group, Tribe of the Oak, that's what we're all focused on. We have so much material. We have the old tribal laws, the Brehon laws. The Brehons were the judges and the lawyers, and they were all Druids. So we know exactly what kind of laws they had. And this is like a thousand years before the Magna Carta. They already had rules about kings and how kings should behave. And kings were elected, and kings could be fired if they didn't behave properly. I mean, this was a thousand years before the Magna Carta. And everybody is so focused on Britain, you know? Mm -hmm. And if you just look at the Irish material, we have a book called the Oidacht Moran, or the Testament of Moran, which is an entire king-making ritual. We have the whole thing. And a Druid would have recited the ritual as the king was being ritually elevated to become a king. And the Druid is teaching the king how to be 
a good king, how to be a just king, and that if the king doesn't behave properly, the land will suffer, and the people will suffer, and the animals will suffer, and the trees. We have a lot of old wisdom poetry that's 2,000 years old. The Song of Amergen comes to mind. <laughs> I think it's just our Anglo-Saxon culture, you know, that we're so caught up with England and anything that happened in Britain, but there's a lot more out there. From Tacitus, Julius Caesar and others, we hear references to Druids in Ireland, Britain and even in Gaul, which is now France. Were these people connected by some common belief system or was the term Druid something that was thrown around to describe vaguely similar groups? Well, actually, according to Julius Caesar, and again, we don't know if this is true or not, but he said that the Druids from all the insular areas, they all met in Britain, which means they were meeting probably in Wales, but if they were meeting regularly, there must have been uniformity, at least some uniformity in what they were doing, because why else would they be meeting on a regular basis? So you often hear people talking about Druids as if they're the adherents of a particular religion, in the same kind of way we call people who believe in Christ Christians. But the term Druid actually just refers to the priestly class, correct? It took 20 years to learn to be a Druid, first of all. It it involved a lot of training. The misunderstanding is that in modern times, somebody can watch a movie or read one book and say, hey, I'm a Druid, pay $25 to a group and say, oh, I'm now a Druid, you know. No, it took 20 years to learn to be a Druid. And there were specialties within Druids, you know, some of them specialized in law, and they kept it all in their head. It was all oral. So they had to memorize the equivalent of 25 volumes of law books. Other Druids were trained in medicine, so they became healers. It was both herbal medicine, magic, and surgery. Some of them were genealogists, some of them were historians, some of them were poets. To be a poet was was an intellectual discipline because the poetic forms were very strict. So you had to know these incredibly strict rhyme schemes. You know, it wasn't just blank verse. The highest trained poets were prophets. They were in touch with the gods and they were receiving inspiration directly from the gods. So what came out of their mouth was prophecy. We actually have rituals. We know what they did, at least some of the things that they did in their training. We even have books that talk about the different poetic grades and how many stories each grade of poet had to know and how many different ohms, the ohm alphabet. We have all of that. But again, that's in the Irish literature. The Druid was the equivalent of Brahmins, and actually this is a whole Indo-European continuum. It's the same social structure as you find in India. So the Druids were the equivalent of Brahmins, and it was a hereditary class. So most Druids had Druid parents. They were trained by both their father and their mother. Then you had the warrior class, and then you had the farmers and producers. And then you had the slaves, and the slaves are the equivalent of the sudra, or the untouchables. It's the exact same social structure. And it was fluid, and same thing in India, it was fluid originally. So the more learning you had, you could move up the social ladder. And if you behaved poorly, you could be knocked down the social ladder. You know, even if you were a prince, you could end up 
in a pigsty, you know, if you behaved really badly. To be a druid was a very highly trained, the word is actually nemed, which means sacred. They were part of the sacred class. So it was very special. People who were not born into the druid class could become druids. But again, there's very strict rules about that. If you became a very wealthy landowner or cow farmer and you had hundreds of cows and you were very rich, you were not of the Nemed class, you could not send your child to be trained as a druid, but you could only send your grandchild to be trained as a druid. So you have to come from three generations of wealth in order to be go to druid college <laughs> and learn to be a druid. This sounds a lot like a hierarchical secular society with lots of rules and regulations, but was there actually a religious core to it or a deity or deities? Uh, it was both, actually. Um, to be a druid was to be an intellectual, first of all. You, you were called a person of arts, what we today would call master of arts. To be a druid, you had to be the master or mistress. I actually have an article that you can find online. It's called Female Druids. Just look up my name and Female Druids and the article will come up. But both men and women were trained as druids. You had to have an intellectual specialty, but the way that the Celtic society worshipped, they were polytheistic, and depending on what your profession was, you would worship or it's more properly you would say you worked with. It's not really worshipping, it's more like forming kinship with being close to a particular deity. If you were a smith, for example, and, and you made shoes for horses, you might have a relationship with Bridget, who's the goddess of smithcraft. If you were a goldsmith, you might have a relationship with Lou, who is the master of goldsmithing. He's also the master of every art, but his specialty was goldsmithing. The farmers loved Lou because Lou was so smart he was able to conquer all obstacles. You know, the farmers loved that. Brehon, a judge or a druid, you might have a relationship with the Dagda. So it all depended on what you were doing. You mentioned the priestly class having women, which is distinctly different from the Abrahamic religions. I did an episode recently on Grace O'Malley, the Irish pirate, and one of the things the British found peculiar about her was that the Irish had a tradition of having female chieftains. Do you think this may have been a hangover from the pre-Christian Druid era? Well, the whole world was like that until the monotheistic Hebrew slash Christian slash Islamic religion came along. That changed everything. That's called patriarchy, right? I always tell people to look at the Old Testament part of the Bible. And in Leviticus, for example, you'll find passages where Yahweh, their monotheistic God is complaining because the people are making offerings to the Queen of Heaven. They're dropping cakes into the fire for the Queen of Heaven, and he keeps complaining, oh, they're, they're just doing this to make me mad. <laughs> like, um, there were goddesses, and there were powerful women, and women rulers. What happened was, during the Bronze Age in the Middle East, not in Europe, a group of high temple priests created their own cult which was strictly male hebrew high temple religion and that cult gradually took over it just demonized literally demonized anything that 
involved uh, worshiping female deities or and then the status of women kept going down and down and down and it took 600 years in Ireland after the missionaries showed up they kept saying oh women are are too delicate women shouldn't have weapons women shouldn't go to battle women shouldn't fight men have to protect women they kept passing laws for 600 years making it illegal for women to carry weapons. And what that tells me is that for 600 years, nobody was listening. Of course women carry weapons because the women were the ones who trained the children to carry a sword. And it took about a thousand years for Europe to be changed into what eventually it was Romanized. And the Greeks and the Romans, their culture was very patriarchal. So... The Christian religion was was just an aspect of the Hebrew religion. It was originally a Jewish cult. So you had that mentality, and then you had the Roman patriarchal mentality and the Greek patriarchal mentality, which it took a thousand years for that to take hold in Western Europe, but eventually it did. It took a lot of terror, witch burnings and goodness knows what kind of awful stuff (laughs) to scare people out of their old ways. But you know what? It's all coming back. So the pre-Christian Romans were suppressing the Druids. Then they persecuted the Christians. And later, the Christianized Romans persecuted the remaining pagans. So how did Druidism resurface centuries after this pretty effective campaign of elimination? Well, first of all, it never went away completely. The Brehon laws, for example, in Ireland were still being used until the 1700s to pass judgment on things. And the stories and the songs were kept alive by the bards and the minstrels and the poets. But what happened was when everybody thought that the Celts and pagans were safely done away with and the world was safely Christian, then along came Rousseau, various other people, and especially when they were looking at what was happening in America, people were looking at the Indians, the Native Americans here in America, and some people hated them, but some people were starting to feel romantic about them, that these wonderful wild men who had this fantastic philosophy of life, and they were pure. So people became fascinated with that. And then they turned around and they said, gee, we have something very similar in Europe. We have our own wild men, our own native traditions. So they started looking at the old ways. And again, that was in the 1700s. Uh, It was actually a group of Masons, Masons both in France and in England, who were doing this. To be a Mason in the 1700s, that was pretty out there, you know? I mean, now they seem kind of tame, but especially Freemasons in the 1700s, that was pretty, pretty risque stuff. So those people... William Blake, the poet William Blake was one of them, for example. So they said, gee whiz, we have our own wild Indians in Europe. And they started calling them Celts. William Blake actually was a Druid, and and he had a Druid group. But they were all Masons. And the problem with that, of course, is that the Masons were all men, so they didn't allow women. And so then this cultural idea of the Druid being an old man with a beard, that goes back to the Masons. If you look at my article, Female Druids, which is on the internet, and I also wrote novels about this. I have a trilogy of novels, Priestess of the Forest, uh, The Druid Isle, and Priestess of the Fire Temple. These are Druid priestesses in the novels. 
But that's all based on what I've been studying and reading for the last 30 years. You've also written a couple of non-fiction books drawn from your experiences and contacts with other contemporary druids from around the world. So tell me about those books. Yeah, if people are interested in modern druids, I have two books. One is called A Legacy of Druids, and it's conversations with druid leaders. And I literally went all over Britain and all over the United States. I didn't go to Ireland for that one. I actually did the interviews in 1996, which sounds like a long time ago, but the people that I interviewed were the founders of the major druid orders that are around now. And Philip Cargon actually wrote the foreword for the book, and he's also interviewed in the book. But I went around, I had my little tape recorder and my microphone, you know, and I I interviewed these druids because I wanted to know. I've been a druid since 1984, officially. You know, every time you talk to a, a druid, you get a different description. They say, ask two druids what a druid is, and you get 10 different answers. I wanted to talk to the people that were the serious founders of the various druid groups, so I went around. And the book is called A Legacy of Druids, and it's in-depth interviews with druid leaders, founders of, of the groups. The other book is called Being a Pagan, and in that one, which I actually wrote first, I was interviewing witches, Wiccans, druids, and other kinds of pagans, because first I wanted to understand what is a pagan. I said, gee, if I'm a pagan, I better know what it is, you know, so... And nobody could really, everybody had a different idea, so I just took it upon myself to go to all the different festivals and interview people. Margot Adler, who's the author of Drawing Down the Moon, I'm so proud of myself because she's a trained journalist, and she said that I did an amazing job. Read A Legacy of Druids, just to get an idea of all the different flavors of druids that there are. But this is all modern Well, there's a particular kind of druid called a Celtic Reconstructionist druid, or a CR pagan. Celtic Reconstructionists try really hard to understand the old deities, the rituals, the beliefs, the ethics, the poetry. That's what Celtic Reconstructionists do. Then there are other druids who say, oh, you can just, if you want to be a druid, all you have to do is sit under a tree or go hug a tree, and that makes you a druid. And so they make it up out of whole cloth, basically. Yeah, there's many different kinds of druids. I mean, my group, Tribe of the Oak, tribeoftheoak.com, we are Celtic Reconstructionists, and I do have a really good book list on that website. If people are interested in, you know, looking into this in depth, there's a, a list of basic, what we call basic books. You study the history, you study archaeology, You study anthropology, you study linguistics, you study the ancient poetry. But as I said, other kinds of druids just say, oh, I love nature, that makes me a druid. I had an Irish grandmother, so I'm a druid. (laughs) From your point of view, since you're trying to keep it more authentic with the original tradition, do you find it frustrating that you have casual people, oh yeah, hey, I'm just a druid because I like flowers or something? I mean, does that make it... Oh yeah, I find it very frustrating. I mean, it's hard for me to keep my mouth shut, you know, because <laughs> I have to be nice, right? I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. To me, it's disrespectful because the ancient druids, we know that they spent at least 20 years in training before they could go out and be a druid. 
To be a druid was to perform a service within the tribe. It's different for being a witch, okay? A witch is a free agent. They are independent. You never know whose side they're on. That's why people were scared of them. You didn't know if they were going to work for you or against you. They were a law unto themselves. That was a witch, and that's why they were scary. A druid worked as part of the tribal structure and was there to serve the tribe and to perform a function. Whether they were being an ambassador, political advisor to the king, or doing battle magic for the king, or being a doctor, or a lawyer, or a ritual leader. They weren't all priests and priestesses, just some of them specialized in that, but it was always a tribal function. To say that you're a druid because you like to hug trees, you know, is, I mean, it's, if you're a Celtic Reconstructionist, that does sound pretty disrespectful. I'm sorry. Sure. And <laughs> sorry if I hurt anybody's feelings. You said your other book, so in your book about pagans, you actually refer to yourself as being a pagan. But that term has a lot of different connotations. Some people might think of a Roman emperor as being a pagan. Some people might think of a Hindu. Some people might even think of devil worshippers as being pagans. So are you comfortable with a tag that has such broad connotations? What do you mean, am I comfortable? Are you comfortable with the idea if somebody refers to you guys as just more broadly like pagans, does that cause any consternation? not all druids are pagans. You run into modern druids all the time who say they're Christian, which I find a little hard <laughs> to understand, but there are Christian druids, there are Jewish druids. People say, what is a pagan? And I said, well, pagan just means that you honor all the gods. It's the opposite of being a monotheist. A monotheist says there's only one god, and usually they say it's their god, and their god is the only god, and their god is the correct god, and if you don't believe in their God, you're a heretic, or you're evil, or, you know, you're nasty, or whatever. And they'll try to convert you. And it doesn't matter whether you're Christian, if you're a Muslim, whatever. It's the same thing. They go all around the world trying to convert people. Well, this is the way I think. I am a pagan. I'm a pagan druid. Okay. I am a monotheist in the sense that I believe that all creation emanates from source. And it's what the Taoists call the mother of 10,000 things. There's this ultimate source. It's what the Hindus would call the Atma, the sacred source of all. So I'm a monotheist in that sense. But I'm also a polytheist because for me, the gods and goddesses and all the spirits emanate from that source. I've been a devotee of the goddess Bridget, for example, for over 30 years now. I'm very comfortable being a polytheist because I recognize other pagans work with other deities and I have no problem with that. And I'm also fine with people who want to work with Jesus or Mary or Jehovah or whoever they want to work with. That's fine. But a pagan is somebody who says all the gods and goddesses are divine. They're all worthy of respect. They're great, all of them. We would never presume to say, Oh, only Thor. <laughs> Thor is the one god. And if you don't worship Thor, you are evil. You know, we, mm-hmm. we just don't say that. So to me, that's the essential difference. When you say practicing druid, what does that actually mean? 
I mean, as a Christian, I might say I'm practicing if I go to church on Sunday. But what does being a practicing Druid actually entail? We have four what we call high holy days. They're fire festivals. We just had one in bulk, what they now call Groundhog Day in the United States. The next one will be Beltane or Bialtana, which is May Day. The next big one is Lunasa or Lamas. And then the next big one is Samhain or Halloween. Those are the four major fire festivals. And all Druids do something on those days. In between, there are the solstices and equinoxes. And those are very minor. In Celtic thinking, there were some minor observances around the solstices and equinoxes. In Scandinavian pagan tradition, the winter solstice is much more important and summer solstice and so on, but not so much in the Celtic year. But I would say pretty much all pagans now celebrate the solstices, the equinoxes, and then the points in between. But the difference is for Druids, the really big ones, the important ones, are Imbolc, Beltane, Lunasa, and Samhain, or Halloween. Those are our big ones. So how big is the Druid community today? Okay, I did ask around, and based on various studies done by Pew, we estimate there's about between 33,000 and 37,000 Druids in the United States. I remember years ago a survey was done, but this is a long time ago, in Britain, and I think they identified 10,000 at that time in Britain, but in the U.S. it's somewhere between 33,000 and 37, practicing genuine Druids. (laughs) If anybody wants to dig deeper, go to tribeoftheoak.com and you'll find the basic book list there. And then they can also go to my website, which is ellenevertthopman.com, and you'll see all my books there. And I have books about trees. I have a Druid's Herbal of Sacred Tree Medicine, which is all about the Oum alphabet and the spiritual meaning of trees. There's another one, Tree Medicine, Tree Magic. I mean, there's the novels, the trilogy of novels is there. Um, that are all about druids, female druids primarily. Um, and there's a lot of other books. But yeah, tribeoftheoak.com and ellenevertthopman.com and you'll see book lists both okay. places. In the next episode, I explore the tradition of Morris dancing. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.